0: Also, I am off today, back on Monday. Ryan McMahon is filling in.
2: I'm Ryan McMahon, filling in for Jesse Brown this week, and I'm joined by Sarah Berman, Senior Editor at Vice. How are you doing, Sarah?
1: Hey, Ryan, doing great.
2: Thanks for joining us from the best coast, the West Coast. Am I cool enough to talk like that? Probably not, huh?
1: Absolutely. It referred to the best coast. I was like, is that not in dispute? I'm not sure I would be able to properly argue that point.
2: So, Sarah, today on the show, we're going to talk about a few big things that came out of Quebec this week. This past Monday, there was a major inquiry report launched, as well as a brand new memorial launched by the National Center for Truth and Reconciliation. And I don't know if you heard or not, Sarah, but you know those climate marches that happened a week ago?
1: Uh, Yeah, I was I was covering them.
2: Yeah, well, they didn't happen.
1: Oh, news to me.
2: I'm sorry to tell you. They, they didn't happen, especially if you read... The National Post. We're going to talk about that this week on the show. Welcome to Shortcuts. This episode of Shortcuts is brought to you by Adina Bogart O'Brien, Andrew Gregg, Gina Rotstein, David Ma, Erica Olson, Melina Filomia, Jean Frederic Daniel, and Karen Suzuki.
0: Hi, my name is Karen Suzuki. I'm a mom and producer in Toronto. I've been a supporter of Canada Land from the very start, and listening to its suite of podcasts has become a regular part of my week. I appreciate the work Jesse and his team are doing to get behind and beyond the headlines while simultaneously criticizing and elevating the importance of journalism in today's world. I continue to support Canada Land because it introduces me to strong, young, and diverse Canadian voices that I wouldn't have found on my own, like Desmond Cole, Aaliyah Pabani, Ryan McMahon, and Sajik Cole. Thanks
2: Canada Land. Climate justice now. Climate justice now. So Sarah, there were a series of climate marches across the country last Friday. Um, I'm going to I'm going to read you I'm going to read you something here. 80,000 people in Vancouver, 20,000 in Victoria. Five hundred thousand in Montreal, four thousand in Edmonton, ten thousand in Halifax, ten thousand in Winnipeg, twenty thousand in Ottawa, estimated fifty thousand in Toronto. Dang! People marched. People, people got out of school, left work, and came down and marched in their city uh, on on what was uh, called a climate strike. And and this was huge. This was the biggest march of its of its kind in Montreal. I mean, a half a million people that a half a million people showed up and you know Greta Thunberg was in town uh Trudeau was there which you know he was protesting himself (laughs) yeah Yeah. that's that's a choice that's a choice first question and I'm being serious did you hear about these climate marches
1: (laughs) I mean I was following it so yes I was I was definitely on the ground I really did appreciate I saw Someone in a dinosaur costume holding up a fuck not this again sign. I appreciated that. Yeah, I I really did feel the energy was different. I I do cover a lot of protests. And sometimes in Vancouver anyway, we just sort of go to the art gallery. It's, you know, a a familiar set of speakers. And this was just totally different. I mean, we blocked the entire Canby Bridge. It was just a... Uh, several city block, uh, massive block. Um, so yes, I heard about them. Ha ha.
2: Thankfully, uh, I did too and was a part of my local. But if you read our national newspaper, the National Post, you wouldn't really know anything that big happened. If you go to the National Post website and search for climate protest or climate march, you'll find a bunch of stories about foreign climate marches, marches that happen in other parts of the world, Belgium, Russia, Berlin, New York, but almost nothing about the half a million people that marched in Montreal. Half a million people in Montreal. And you, you just you won't see it. And and as of today, uh, to be fair, when recording this on, on Wednesday night, there, there are a few paragraphs about it as part of a story on some uh, political roundup. Um, I, I saw something like the federal election 2019 roundup. Protesters dog Justin Trudeau on climate march. Like that was, <laughs> that was the only thing happening. But, you know, that's really, that's, that's, that's it. There, there's no mention of the scale of the protests nationwide. There's no mention of the groups that participated, whether they were nurses or union members or students. Nothing. And and I will say to their credit one of Post media's brands, the Montreal Gazette, did mention the scale of the Montreal protests in their live coverage because how the hell could they not? I mean we're talking about half a million people but man if you you know if you look at some of the other post media papers where there were marches in other cities across Canada, the Toronto Sun, Ottawa Sun, you'll just you'll 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 find very little news but there were, Tons of opinions.
1: Yeah, I'm looking at a few actually from the Toronto Sun. I mean, climate conversation lacks nuance. We used to discuss the importance of not idling in our vehicles and not being wasteful. The type of rhetoric now dominates the discussion of environmentalism has become more aggressive, outlandish and alarmist. It's like, oh, okay, Toronto Sun. It's not that we're just 11 years away from, you know, having to dramatically almost have our emissions or otherwise face actual scientific catastrophe. Uh, apparently, it's, you know, these signs that have gotten too aggressive um, and we're, we're just not recycling enough. Like, how uh i would say that column certainly lacks a little nuance
2: yeah and there was there was more in the toronto sun about you know how young people can save the planet and 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 basically what they're what they're trying to tell us here is that these young naive kids that are skipping school and the the school boards allowing it you know are doing a disservice and what they really should be doing is educating kids about how without fossil fuels in in the prosperous country you know they they live and wouldn't exist. You know without said fossil fuels, and that their lives would be short and and brutal. And <laughs> you can go right across the country on these headlines and and look at them, and that basic uh, sentiment runs throughout these papers.
1: Yeah, and then there's the shaming over skipping school. How dare kids right like get themselves out of school to protest something that will affect their next you know seventy years on this planet. I thought that the climate coverage overall, it was definitely a big spike on the Friday. And I thought that was interesting. I did think, you know, even even if you're getting these sort of Sue n Levy hot takes, you're still getting a lot of coverage. But I do worry that, you know, it didn't really connect, one, to the election cycle. And it didn't really continue. Like, even by Tuesday this week, you were seeing a huge drop off in climate coverage. And yeah, I just worry about, you know, um, this is, you know, we only have two election terms and change until we hit our first big global deadline on climate change. And it just seems to not have momentum or staying power, at least not in the Canadian media.
2: Right. And, and Canada Land actually ran something about the post media's sort of hard right turn and You know and and we'll link to that in the show notes and and you know I don't want to generalize because I don't think it's fair and I think that there's probably a lot of journalists at post media that are afraid to talk because uh, jobs (laughs) Um, but you know it's 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 that in that hard right turn of a national paper like this where you know it's still shocking I mean it's still shocking with all of the science and everything we know that a paper would just not run the news that that instead it would run pieces on on Greta Thunberg and why the u n are are hypocrites for supporting her and and that that really that there's no there's no coverage there's no there's no news coverage there's no there's no actual journalism that is happening in in one of Canada's you know largest papers
1: i mean it really is the bare minimum that you could do as a paper to cover yeah a half a million people uh on the street
2: it seems like a pretty monumental moment and it seems that if you know if you are the paper of record or one of the papers of record in a country that that's something that you would want in the archives in the database like yep we covered it we did our jobs but that's, but that's, you know, that's not what happened. And, and I think, I think that, you know, you know, in, in, in coverage on these stories, you know, we, we, we really have to look at, you know, what we're actually covering. So what got a lot of play was when, was when young Greta Thunberg met uh, Justin Trudeau and that was everywhere. That photo was, was everywhere. And of course, you know, it comes out that she possibly scolded uh, the prime minister. Now, is that is that election coverage, you know, because our prime minister hero met with the, the young person that motivated the world to do this, uh, because that's the spin I saw was that, oh, look how brave he is. He went and he got a tongue lashing from the young woman that, you know, is driving the movement.
1: I mean, yeah, I was sort of embarrassed by the kind of positioning and messaging around that. It's just not um, broad-minded. It's not looking forward enough. And that's what I think was missing from the week's coverage was true visionary, you know, looking forward. How do we get from A to B? Like there's a lot of points that we need to pass on the way to be there. And not to toot my own horn, but I did sort of recently do a story about what it would be like if we actually use climate emergency to use wartime measures and to create crown corporations to completely rejig our economy. Uh, Seth Klein, he also did a piece in the Tai this week about this concept. And it's basically using, you know, lessons from 1940 in how to actually, you know, attack the issue in a total sweeping way.
2: And when you listen to young people and, and, you know, I've got, I've got two teenage daughters and when I talk to them about this stuff, they're so impatient, they're so impatient with, with this idea that, you know, we're going to wean ourselves off of fossil fuels and that 50 years from now, as the transition continues, they're like, cut the bullshit, yo." You know, say, <laughs> you know, say on God that things are gonna be okay. You know, that's what they would say, Dad. Say on God that that huh. that everything's gonna be all right. And I'm like, yeah, no, I've, I can't, I, can't, I don't, I, I want it to be. And and I'm, I'm proud that you're both gonna skip school and go and, and march, and you know, they're a part of clubs at school and whatnot. But but I can't promise them things are gonna be okay, and they've got no patience for it. And I think that. That's what's so important. Like, it, you know, the coverage of, of, of young people hitting the streets sort of, uh, it, it sort of stops at the point where, while these young, naive kids don't know how the economy works and don't know how the global economy works and how trade and markets and exports work, and, and they're so naive and stupid. But really what they're saying is, we don't fucking give a shit about the markets or the economy. We're saying fundamentally, let's take pause. And like, it's hard for me to look at my kids and say like, yeah, no, these, these people that that run this shit have your best interests in mind because I'd be lying to them.
1: It's such a short deadline. And to have, you know, a carbon tax is, is one thing, but it's not a visionary plan. It's not all the pieces, you know? And I do think there is some responsibility on journalists to be holding, these leaders, their feet to the fire on this, it should be in every scrum. We should be talking about climate change, not just last week when it was in the media already. You know, we still got a couple weeks of this election. And I think, you know, people should be asking more of that. Here in Canada, we're warming twice the pace of everywhere else.
0: with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca canadaland Canada Land to claim this offer. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health. Right now, there is an opioid crisis. Right now, there is a mental health crisis. But right now, it is Mental Health Week. And what that means is you can do something about these crises. You can help people. You can help CAMH save lives. They offer treatment with dignity, and they are doing cutting-edge help change mental health care forever. Your support will help CAMH build a future where nobody is left behind. Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help them treat addiction and build hope. Sarah, I know you are a longtime listener of
2: Shortcuts. Yes, hmm <laughs> Yeah, so, so you know about Duly Noted, where uh, we take time on the show to duly note something in the news uh, to make sure that the story... Uh, is in front of the earballs and eyeballs of folks that may have missed it. Um, I have one. Can I go first?
1: I would love that.
2: Um, TSN, the Sports Network, um, uh, is doing uh, currently doing a series of documentaries on Indigenous hockey players in the NHL. And I feel like, definitely on Canada land, uh, but I feel like sort of generally in sports media, unless you're paying attention to sports media, you never really know what sports media is doing, and I wanted to duly note these documentaries for a number of reasons. Um, uh, one of the ones that came out uh, most recently was a story of Brady Keeper. Uh, Brady is is uh, is from Pimichigamack Cree Nation, uh, one of the communities in Canada that suffers from some of the highest suicide rates per capita uh, in in the country. And um, his story is not just improbable and heroic and all the rest, but it is one that I think you know really really needs to be celebrated. Brady is a young man who uh, has signed to play with the Florida Panthers, whose life has been uh, profoundly impacted by a number of suicides that were close to him in his family, and uh, and his friends as well. And I think TSN has done a really great job of of bringing the humanity behind these uh, very tragic stories to highlight the fact that if you persevere and if you uh, continue to work hard and surround yourself with supports, that truly anything is possible. And this is a message that young Indigenous people don't hear enough of. And so I wanted to duly note the TSN, the jocks, the sports guys, uh, really put some good work uh, into these documentaries.
1: Mm, Duly noted.
2: So, Sarah, you have a duly noted for us.
1: I do. I would like to duly note that Robin Doolittle, her book, Had It Coming, came out last week, and I blew through it super quick. I was so fascinated. It's, of course, about, I mean, her coverage of sexual assault, her Unfounded series, but it's so much more than that. Just really looking at sexual assault, the law, and our our, our culture, and our media, actually. It's, it's very much a lot of media criticism in it. And uh, one of the takeaways I wanted to talk about was that, you know, Canadian media and uh, sexual assault coverage was very predator-apologist a lot more recently, at least than I had thought. Hmm. Doolittle goes over the case of former Nova Scotia Premier Gerald Reagan, who abused 22 women, and some of the charges uh, included rape and assault. And as recently as 2002, the National Post had this to say, I'm going to quote, The chances of a male accused of sexual offense receiving a fair trial in Canada's matriarchal justice system are better than the chances of a Jew receiving a fair trial in Nazi Germany, but only just. Okay, so like, the media in 2002, I mean... I was what? I think I was just starting university. So so I'm in this, you know, I, I guess university, supposedly, you know, lots of alcohol going around, culture, and and this is what our national media was saying about sexual assault. They were making noise about how, oh, these offenses happened in the 70s, it was a different time. Can we really apply, you know, standards of the two thousands to to a time so far away, wow. and when the prosecutors eventually dropped those charges, the Globe and the Halifax Daily News—they had headlines like "Ordeal Ends" and "Prosecutors Give Up." And so that was a huge takeaway for me in terms of uh, just what the environment was then and what the environment is now. And it makes me wonder—you know—what's going to sound this tone deaf in twenty years? Have we changed the way we understand predators? Are we still apologists in some ways? Well, wow. <laughs> I mean, I did not know that. It's, uh, it's a totally new landscape. I do appreciate the activists that say, you know, this isn't about men's path to redemption. That's not the focus of this movement. I think that's an important voice, too. But this is going to stick with me forever, too, is that she sort of looks at the case of uh, Steve Pakin uh, in The Agenda on TVO. Um oh, As an example of this process of public allegation handled properly in that the allegations made by uh, Sarah Thompson were taken seriously, they were investigated, and it, when found not to be substantiated, Pakin's life wasn't ruined. I guess those are, you know, the concerns on all the sides is that, oh, we have a new accusation culture and it's supposedly ruining people you know cancel culture and all that and so this was an example in Canada uh, that that Doolittle argues was was done right and yeah I mean that brings up a lot of feelings for me I'm not sure how I think about it yet but I totally recommend Picking up that book.
2: Excellent, duly noted. And because Jesse Brown isn't here, Sarah Berman, we're gonna do a third duly noted. How does that sound?
1: That sounds great. Okay,
2: Um, usually there's uh, two, but we wanna throw a third one because we do want to tip our hat to the um, emotional labor and the professional uh, labor that Mo Dollywall and others have put into the conversation around the fallout and what happened at Global News out in British Columbia. For context, mo Dolly gets invited to a panel on Focus BC on global news hosted by Sonia Dial to discuss racism and Trudeau's blackface Scandal and he's getting set up and he overhears one of the staff make a joke about blackface so Dolly calls this out during the taping and the panel ends up getting shelved Global News cites that it was a CRTC violation and says to him that they will not publicly acknowledge the incident. That's where Dollywell gets obviously angry and he writes about it on the Georgia Strait, after which they invite him back to chat with Jill Kropp about the issue to be transparent. Jill Crop, we should note, is the news director at Global GlobalBC. Uh, Sarah, I think we'd be remiss if we did not uh, duly note this. Do you have anything to add?
1: You know, I watched... The clip, and I had to turn it off at, at a minute in because it was so maddening to see Jill crop. Uh, just if you're going to do a segment like this, you know, it's, it's so disrespectful, I felt, to sort of keep that upper hand and to try and at every point sort of minimize what Mo was bringing up. The fact that she interjected with, I think you're assuming a lot, you know, and to point out, oh, I think your community is divided on this. You know, it just really went beyond the pale. Yeah, She's trying to call Mo out for finger pointing and blaming. And I think she's doing exactly that in the clip. And it was just so frustrating. I mean, kudos really does go to Mo for making that happen. I'm... I'm really impressed with him. Rather
2: than run the piece where where this took place, Global killed the piece and and wasn't going to wasn't going to say anything about it. And then when Mo, you know, pushed back, that forced Jill Crop um into action in this terrible terrible video um that uh, we should actually link to in the show notes and so people can see it because it's really it's really unbelievable. To, on one hand, tr- you know, hear Jill Crop, I guess, apologize. Is that what she's trying to do in that video?
1: <laughs> I mean, she did look into the camera at one point and say sorry. But again, it was just she didn't have answers for the questions of, you know, what work are you doing?
2: Well, I will say it has not been solved worldwide. I'm so, saying working to solve this. How are you right, working right. to solve so, this? So, I will say this has not. This issue and these discussions go on right around the world and so to say to suggest
1: that global BC will solve this that's not what I said I said what
2: are you doing in working to solve what is the work you're doing that's the question I'm asking I'm not saying have you solved it I'm saying what is the work
1: yeah just interjecting to tell Mo you know that he's wrong about his own line of criticism yeah if you're gonna make that space I, I I just think you have to be open and not try to make the apology on your own terms like that.
2: Well, and she, you know, later in the video, she brings, I know you only got a minute in.
1: (laughs) Oh, I I eventually did get to the end. Oh, you did, okay. (laughs) Just for the record, but
2: uh, it was tough. The the diversity and inclusion committee thing was the thing that really, really stuck out for me.
1: When workplaces, uh, you know, like Global, have diversity and inclusion committees and panels and and that, you know, that that messaging uh, comes through Uh, what is it what else needs to be done so that all workplaces have a very clear guideline on what's acceptable and what is it what
2: else needs to be done there is this idea that you will find some people in an organization that are from diverse communities that will sit on these these little committees and then because usually and i think mo was, was was bang on here You know, Mo is saying, well, usually these people are subservient to the power structure, and so you know they have precarious work or they're sort of junior staff that get put on these committees, and so therefore they are sort of there to serve the status quo. And I'm generalizing, and not all not all people that are on uh, diversity and inclusion committees do do that, but they do feel the weight of the institution when they start to push or pull too hard, and I think Mo's point about that making making um racialized people do that work inside of these institutions is bullshit and um i think at at least for me and i I, you know i was i'm not there i don't know mo and i'm not intimately connected to the situation but it does seem like his concerns were falling on deaf more more than deaf ears i mean they were falling on defensive ears
1: duly noted
2: Sarah, this past week was Orange Shirt Day. Every September 30th, we commemorate a young woman's experience at residential school. Her name was Phyllis Webstat, and on her first day of residential school, she was wearing an orange shirt that her grandmother bought for her. When she arrived at school, her shirt was taken from her, and she never saw it again. This story a few years ago caught the attention of so many people that they commemorated this day uh, and call it Orange Shirt Day, to to stand and honor uh, survivors of Indian residential schools. So that happened on Monday. And that exact same day, two major things happened in Quebec. One was the Viennes Report, which was a report that basically outlined the mistreatment of Indigenous women in Quebec. Now, the inquiry was called after a number of First Nation women in Val d'Or, Um, complained about physical and sexual abuse by members of the province's police force, the Sûreté de Québec. The report is 520 pages long, 142 calls to action. It's huge. And the second thing I want to mention uh, out of Québec was the National Truth and Reconciliation Memorial that was unveiled on Monday as well, which named nearly 3,000 children that died at residential school and highlighted 1,600 others that were buried without their names recognized. Now, two horrific events being commemorated and talked about in mainstream media on the exact same day while we're honoring Indian residential school survivors. So my question to you today, Sarah, and we're gonna start with just a little old question. How did we do covering these two major releases uh, on that day and how the hell do we continue to cover these stories in mainstream media in Canada without losing the humanity behind them?
1: Yeah, I mean, such a big question to tackle. I do think these things converging at the same time did allow for a little bit more breakthrough in the mainstream. That was at least my impression. Orange Shirt Day and, and you know, this memorial definitely got the straight-ahead kind of coverage where, you know, we saw the names in the major papers and we saw basically event coverage. And I think that's something, but it's certainly, you know, on its own, not enough. It does sort of make it seem like a a historical problem, something that happened so, so long ago. And I just think, you know, as reporters, there's a bit more of a responsibility to make this you know, a today issue, a today story.
2: You know, I've kind of always got my foot on the gas pedal when it comes to the way we cover these things because I'm Indigenous, and, it, and to me it's really a, an important conversation. Is it fair for me to to guess that in 2016, the way we covered the TRC and, and reconciliation writ large, am I fair to guess that today in 2019 it has changed, that we're not as motivated to cover it the way we did a few just a few years ago and that maybe our we've relaxed a little bit in in kind of not really not really putting all the resources into these types of stories that we we did just a few years ago
1: certainly we didn't see anything super interactive, creative, you know, engaging in the same way. You basically just saw, you know, videos and and lists and, you know, sort of your daily day-to-day coverage as if these journalists probably got the press release that morning and just wrote something up. So I think you're right. I think a bit of the energy in covering these issues has dissipated.
2: As we continue to learn more and more about this country with a the, with the report like the Viennes report out of Quebec, where we learn, oh, well, that the indigenous women in Quebec, you know, had to come forward after decades and decades of abuse at the hands of the Sirete de Quebec, finally have their voices heard. And, you know, and, and and as we learn more and more about this country, I feel like we run the danger of Canadians kind of rolling their eyes and going like oh shit, another report, more data, more numbers. And and I feel like we run the danger of losing the humanity behind the stories if we just kind of eye roll at more data coverage and more sort of just kind of a more, more terrible stories from Indian country. Because it seemed like in 2016 there were so many stories that the humanity was really front and center because you couldn't ignore it, it was everywhere. And now when you get this sort of sparse more, or more sparse coverage that we run the risk of these things just kind of running the news cycle and and that's it.
1: I mean, I wonder, too, if that has something to do with the election cycles of, you know, 2015 uh, and today when you had Trudeau running on a new relationship with indigenous peoples. Obviously, we've been totally disillusioned, you know, in him. Demonstrating any commitment to that promise over the last years. And so that party has in particular really just stayed silent on that issue. And I, I think it's it is the responsibility of journalists to connect to that and say, look, you know, this was a campaign pointless last, last cycle. And this just has been completely pulled off the table or ignored this election cycle. And it does seem like politicking on some level, but I do think, yeah, these voices need to be heard. And instead of just chasing what's in this election cycle, whatever it is, you know, sometimes it's reusable cups or whatever being photoshopped. It it really (laughs) seems like not the right priorities on, on journalists' desks.
2: Yeah, I think you bring up a good point about the election. All eyes are on all, uh, all of the leaders. And so I I think you you bring a good point that I actually hadn't really considered. I, w- I want to pivot a little bit and and talk a little bit about data journalism and, and just the way these numbers sort of roll off the tongue. Now, I was very lucky to be a part of an event last uh, last week, and I met this, this woman, uh, this researcher and writer by the name of Nanjala Niabola who writes about foreign policy and, and and Africa, and she's from Africa, and she argues that data journalism really, while it's important, and we certainly need data journalism, that that it runs the risk of flattening out people, and that data and the numbers become the story rather than humanity. What role do you think data journalism and the way we cover these stories with the numbers can strip people of the humanity and, 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 you know, you hear these numbers all the time. You hear, you know, 4,000 missing and murdered indigenous women. You hear 3,000 dead kids at residential schools that are buried there. How do, how do we keep humanity at the front and center uh, of these stories?
1: I mean, as a journalist, those personal stories are so important. It's so important to also give them, you know, dignity in that. I, I do agree. There's sort of a, hard to fathom aspect of all these big numbers and all these big reports with lots of action items that are hard to hold in your head all at once. And so you do need that clarity, that, you know, personal human story. I was tweeting about this this week. Cindy Blackstock, I mean, I love her. She's a hero. Happy birthday to her this week. I feel like she... (laughs) has brought those human stories just having spoken to her she's always got you know first nations children at the front of her mind she tells their stories in such a compelling way you know where where it just seems so obvious and it's and she's so driven i guess i take some cues from that where this is how simple it can be. It's are we discriminating against First Nations children or or not?
2: Yeah, well, you, you wrote something about her back in 2016 and to give you all the clicks and all the props. I think it's a really, really great piece that you wrote about her. But I noticed this week on Twitter when you wished her a happy birthday, you said this was one of the most memorable and inspiring interviews you had done to date. What for you as a journalist really stood out when you when you got to touch and, and, and feel the humanity behind these numbers? What for you uh, was important about that story? <laughs>
1: Just her journey, like I've known about her since around 2012, 2013. Uh, I did know to some smaller extent uh, the way that she'd been treated by the government, the, the way that her, you know, family-carrying society had lost its funding and that she had been spied on. I had been doing spying stories back at that time. What really just did it for me was how simple she could put it in terms of, you know, these concepts, these legal concepts like Jordan's principle, she connected that to, you know, a girl who just needs an apparatus to breathe properly. Mm -hmm. And to have, you know, the provincial and federal governments trying to pass the buck, and her being just hurt and harmed in the process. I just thought that that was just so compelling. Mm -hmm. And she does connect it to the numbers as well. I mean, she does have a very sharp sort of legal numbers deadlines mind she at the end of that interview said something to me like trudeau when he's asked about this says we can do better by first nations children and you know what that's not good enough that sounds discretionary that sounds like oh yeah maybe tomorrow we'll feel better and and do something but you know the law has found that actually the government is discriminating against First Nations children and you need to correct it you need to actually do something by a deadline or face penalty and so she's really asking for those dates for those deadlines for those dollar values mm-hmm. and so that that just you know brings it all together that sort of data and human story aspect and yeah it does it stays with me i think about her i i wish her well
2: i was definitely trying to connect the way we report on these stories in canadian media and and try to connect the humanity behind the reporter behind the story so that we can ensure that that the, the humanity remains intact throughout and um i wanted to highlight your work uh and your reporting with cindy blackstock because i think you did that uh, brilliantly so there you go
1: Uh huh. thanks brian <laughs>
2: That's your Canada Land Shortcuts. You can email Jesse at jesse at canadalandshow.com. He reads them all. I encourage you, truly, email him. Everybody listening to this. There's probably about 48,000 of you. It would be nice if you all emailed him. Uh, how how do uh, people find you, Sarah? <laughs> uh,
1: you can find me on on Twitter at uh, Sarah B-E-R-M-S. B-E-R-M-S. Uh, yeah, or you can find me at vice.com.
2: Excellent. We are on Twitter at Canada Land. I too am on Twitter at RMcomedy. You can go to our website at CanadalandShow.com. This episode was most excellently produced by Tiffany Lamb. Our managing editor is Kevin Sexton. Syndication is by CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria. You can visit them online at cfuv.ca. I'm Ryan McMahon. It's been a pleasure to be here. Jesse Brown is back on Monday. If you like what we do and you'd like to receive ad-free versions of all of our podcasts, please support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash Canada Land.